The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. I am senior reporter with Provoke Media, and I am happy to be kicking off 2023 with a special guest star guest today. Uh, We have AJ Jones, who has been Starbucks chief communications officer since August 2022. AJ was promoted to that position after being uh, there for 12 months, correct, with the coffee giant? And before Starbucks, AJ was the chief corporate affairs officer and communications officer for Vanda Pharmaceuticals. He's held executive roles at the Kellogg Foundation, and he is here today. So welcome. Wonderful. Hey, thank you so much, Diana. I so appreciate it. And Happy New Year to you, too, as well. I can't think of a better way to be able to kick off this new year than having a, a dialogue with you. And I'm excited about what to share today, but more importantly, kind of tell you all the little things that I've been up to here at Starbucks and then also outside of it. So thank you so much again. I appreciate it. We're happy to have you. Um you know, we we were just talking a little bit, you know, you ha- um, in 2022 are, you're sort of a provoked media pro- uh, rock star. <laughs> um, <laughs> in addition to graciously um, presenting at our, uh, our global summit, you are a member of our Innovator 25 class that, for those of you who don't know, is an honor that we reserve for um, the PR industry's sort of most forward thinking um, leaders. And your appointment at Starbucks um, in last August was deemed our fourth biggest news story of the year. That's a credit to you. It also is a um, credit to the move of you in terms of being the first African-American in that position, um, diversifying a industry that needs diversification, not just coffee, but in communicators. So um, my first question with all that sort of weighty stuff is, um, do you feel a lot of pressure? (laughs) (laughs) On the job. I appreciate that. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that we're recording this because you said that I was a rock star. I got to make sure I take that back and let my kids and my wife know that every now and then. And I'll so, call them. I'll let them know. I'll let them know. <laughs> that <laughs> was wonderful. Um, you know, I, I think for many of us, um, to answer your question, I think three things. One, it is both a distinct honor and a privilege to represent and be the mouthpiece on behalf of the fifth largest, most recognized, the fifth most recognized brand in the world. And I think that that by itself comes at no at no sense of loss. I mean, people have whether personal stories or broad memories of their experience with our brand and with Starbucks, whether it be in terms of um, going into a store, whether it be in, in Thailand or in Bali or, or what have you, or just being able to provide some sense of connection that happens at our stores each and every day. And being in 87 countries, 40,000 stores, being in spaces and places where people connect with the brand is is that in itself is a great honor and a great privilege and also a great responsibility. I think the second piece is as a person of of color and particularly as African-American male where you have very few African-American males who hold a C-suite structured role within a publicly traded company, for communications, I do think that that creates both a sense of trail trailblazing, but I think it also creates an opportunity 
for the industry to consider widening its aperture as it thinks about talent and where talent comes from. I would say in many respects, I'm a bit of a non-traditionalist. When I came into this role, my world and my career started out actually overseas, working through United Nations structures and working on issues around research and HIV AIDS and what have you, and then moved from that sphere, that sphere to politics, and then from politics to communications and communications into philanthropy. So I think these, you know, looking at talent beyond just what we would call the normal kind of arc of a career from agency into in-house, I think is something that is worthy to be looked at. And, I, and I, I'm hopeful that my experience in my time in this role and how I came to this role inspires others and quite frankly encourages other companies to look much more broadly at talent opportunities and particularly people of color. And I think the last piece is, I, I'm mindful of the fact I'm, I came to this company at a unique time and juncture, uh, if you will, both in its own uh, history and then more importantly, in the, in the times that we're in today. When one thinks about all of the challenges that are happening in society, whether it be political, social, economic, or what have you, coming out of the rise of the pandemic, and coming uh, at a time when the company was having a CEO transition back to its founder and also interim CEO, and now having the first found the first CEO of color to now lead the company, I'm mindful of the fact that all of that is also a wrap uh, a wrapper around my role and, quite frankly, my responsibility. So I do see all of those as being necessary things for me, not only to hold but to also invite others in as well as we think about how we move this field forward and what this field can really produce. The latter piece I will say over top of all of that is comms now has become a central part of driving the business. And I'm not saying that it wasn't in the past, but I think people have recognized, particularly during the pandemic, when things like employee engagement and what have you became so critical to the retention of talent the promotion of talent and the recognition of talent, communications now is inextricably linked, if you will, to the way in which we think about the normal business metric drivers uh, that one would look at from a financial standpoint or from a fiduciary and materiality standpoint. And more and more investors are quite frankly are asking those things uh, too as well. So I think that also had a role to play in it. But yes, I'm thankful for this. Well, so, I mean, the role is so, um, it, it just keeps getting bigger based on what you're saying. Yes. I mean, it touches yeah. every tangent here. <laughs> so it's like, I picture you kind of the center thing with, with tentacles going out all over the place. And you have to process it. I guess it's sort of like being the president of the world. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you keep up, how, how I mean, how you even get in the priority, but that's why you have that job and I don't, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind. Well, I, I would say to you, I, I think, you know, one of the unique things about us in this role, it emphasizes, you're right, we are, are our responsibilities and tentacles are spread far and wide, which means the teams that you have under you and the way in which you collaborate across the enterprise are critical to your success. And your ability to speak the language of the enterprise is critical too as well. I, I think one of the unique things that helped me was I have both a uh, corporate governance background from a, both academic standpoint and also uh, professional standpoint, as well as I have a financial background. So to be able to appreciate the way in which business leaders have to think about what they're doing across the business and enterprise, and then also how, whether it be from legal 
to, if you will, store design uh, in our company and, and the way that all kind of fleshes out, being able to speak the metrics in terms of that is really important and understanding, quite frankly, like how do we make a dollar and then what is the responsibility that us as communicators have to that or us as brand representatives or corporate reputation holders have to that and how do we best exercise those responsibilities to that end? And I imagine that having that that um, sort of far-reaching knowledge or or widespread on on all these different factors also is a factor in fostering respect for the communications function. Absolutely, I think in many in in, in many times, um, and this is not too long ago, and you can probably remember this, Diane. I mean, for a long time, communications was thought as oh, that's the place I go get press release, right. press releases. I call it drive-by comms, and <laughs> you know, and um, and I think. That fundamentally changed, quite frankly, in the, in the dawn of the early 2000s. And I think as we started to march towards the, um, 2010 and then more importantly towards 2020, people started to realize, well, comms has this amazing power. And I think it was inextricably linked, inextricably linked, if you will, to so the rise of social media. I think you can track those two um, in, in context with each other. And we've also seen how when bad communication happens, whether it be from a leader or from a CEO or from a board member, um, that it can have demonstrative, demonstrative impact, uh, if you will, on the valuation of the brand. And I think I remember reading somewhere where within the Fortune 500 companies, they can, can, they can attribute anywhere from 15 to 27% of their enterprise value to the reputation that they hold as a company which is effectively the, the, the communications functions responsibility. So I think if a quarter of almost of your value as a company is based upon how you communicate and how you're represented and what it is you're represented by, one can see how the importance around comms has become uh, so key to that. Absolutely. With the elevation of the, um, at least the perceived importance of comms, it's always been important, but everybody's yes, yes. kind of joining in. I mean, do you see that fueling a different kind of candidate talent coming into these roles? Because yes. maybe, they, I mean, we do see lawyers and we do see former spokespeople in politics, mm -hmm. but I mean, do you expect to see the role of the individual or the education or the experience of the individual change with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in three ways. One is today's communicator does have to have global background, global experience. It's, it, when I think about my counterparts, many of them have either worked globally, have had to have global remits, whether it be in previous roles, or have had to be situated where they've been what I would call ex-US or ex-American culture and had to think about how to bring a brand to life or how to think about whether the communication guidelines and rules and, and reputational dynamics to be considered to be in these kind of C-suite CCO roles. I think the second piece is definitely having an understanding, even if they didn't work in it, having this understanding of public policy, politics, and quite frankly, at the multilateral level, because mm -hmm. so much of what we do now around ESG is governed at multilateral level institutions. And so understanding the inner workings and operations that both can impact how brand reputation is understood and then also how it's ranked and appreciated is something that more and more the, the, C, the, the CCO role has to have. And I think the last piece that you're seeing uh, across that is this acute need to think about diversity. As, as brands become much more 
oriented around the needs, not only to diversify into new markets, into new spaces, but quite frankly, to represent themselves into different environments authentically. One then has to ask themselves the question, well, how authentic are the people whom which are communicating that? And we've often seen, even when brands may have a high affinity within certain communities, if you don't have that, bad things can happen. And we all can think about where there's been really bad brand reputation moments because a company did something and didn't know a historical dynamic that was related to that and ultimately wound up having to do a lot of maya culpas. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, there's a value proposition that could be played there. So definitely, I think that those three things are, are there. And I, I would say to you, CEOs now are much more attuned to that than ever before. I, I think be, because of their brand as CEOs, they recognize that that's an extension, that you as a head of comms, you're an extension of who they are and a, represent, a, re a reflection of who they are. And so I think as they're picking who their spokespeople are or could potentially be, they're thinking through those lenses too as well and how well that represents them and also the company in which they are presiding over. And, and both for the CEO and for the company, there is very little room to screw up now. Yes. <laughs> You're, yeah. You are, there, there you is. are <laughs> screwed. There <laughs> is. And, and, so, and so one of the things you started to get into to that point is you spend enormous, so I often tell people, so I've, you can appreciate, I have a lot of people who've come to me to ask for career advice or counsel and as they're thinking about moves and, and they've asked uh, some of my suggestions as they start new roles or new positions. And one of the things I've said to them is if you're coming into a new role as a CCO, your year one goal should be able to get the award as the chief listening officer. Mm -hmm. that you have to be an incredible listener. Um, because to, in my opinion, the best communicators are people who listen exceptionally well, not only to what is spoken, but also what is unspoken. And when you are able to garner that, uh, it, it allows for you to not necessarily worry so much about the mistakes you are making or could make, but more so the opportunities that you have available to address some of the concerns so that you don't make mistakes. And oftentimes comms finds itself in a mistake position when it is rushed upon on something that it doesn't fully understand or has misinterpreted or misheard. And then it has to go two or three or four different cleanups to be able to figure that out. And sometimes that is recoverable. And you know, as you can know, Diana, sometimes that's not recoverable. Right. Um, so you have to add psychologists to the, <laughs> the <world. laughs> my head's exploding just hearing about it, AJ. <laughs> so so um, we have so much to touch on here, mm -hmm. um, but I do want to ask a little bit of return, a little bit to the question of diversity, given that sure. you have, yes. whether you want to or not, been put in this yes. position to be a leader in, uh, I don't mean want to or not, but intentionally. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things you said um, when you were speaking with our friend Chris Foster at our Global Summit, I have your quote here, it said, if I am the one bringing diversity by walking into the room, that is a problem. I'm assuming you mean that is the problem in whether it's corporate America or wherever you are. Absolutely. I mean, yes. So you have the if in there, but is that the problem? Do we have it is. I, I I would say to you, I think still in the landscape of, of agencies, um, you know, and I, and you can imagine, I, I interviewed a lot of different agencies because of the business that we're in. 
and 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 I've also worked on the agency side. I, I unfortunately, you know, there have been strides. So I don't want to by any means say there haven't been strides, but unfortunately, is is not deep enough, is not wide enough, and it doesn't have, in my opinion, the level of scope it should have. And so when when you start to grab, so when you tend to see diversity disproportionately in agency world, and I'll get into in-house in a second, mm -hmm. when it tends to be an agency world, it disproportionately tends to be in what I call the public affairs and government affairs side of the house. Um, and that's that's all well and good. But when you know that the majority of the spin, and a lot of agencies are tilted this way, the majority of the spins of the, some of your big conglomerate agencies are in brand or in product branding or what have you, when you get to those spaces, the amount of diversity there drops off dramatically. And there tends to be, and you tend to see this on even a lot of uh, announcements that tend to happen, there tends to be when the next CEO or CCO or next president of those particular sides of the house tends to be announced, it tends to be just a rotation of the same people. Mm -hmm. It tends to be people who are either at Weber, and then they go from Weber to Edelman, and they go from Edelman to BCW. I mean, and it tends to just be that because it tends to be this narrative that, um, well, these people already kind of know how to do that so they can continue to kind of keep doing that. And the reason why I raise this as an issue, one of the most powerful lessons that one of my former leaders and to this day mentors, and I consider to say a father figure to me, uh, Former, former, uh, sorry, I should say, um, majority whip Jim Clyburn. Now, you know, former majority whip, obviously since the Congress has changed uh, from South Carolina. When I worked with him, he made it a point that I, myself, and a couple of others were the first African Americans to lead in leadership roles within um, within the leadership of the Congress, wow. and he did that based upon, uh, if you will. He did that based upon the idea that he wanted to give us the opportunity because he knew we had the skill set and the abilities and the talents to do this work. But the way that it used to go in the past on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, was that, well, you can only be in leadership roles if you have previous leadership experience. Well, until you get that experience, you're never going to have those roles. And I do think to a certain degree that that mindset does exist with inside agency world. Where, you know, in order for you to be a C CEO of an agency, you have had to have previous agency experience as a CEO. And to be fair, unless somebody takes a chance on you, which then speaks to the second piece, which is oftentimes our HR departments tend to be what I call de-risking agencies versus mm -hmm. the risk-oriented agencies. And so their interest in oftentimes taking risk tends to be to the opposite. They tend to de-risk. So they tend to look at okay, how do I make sure we put somebody in this role who we believe is going to be the most successful person in this role, which then tends to hinge on, well, who was successful in this role in the past? And then what's the profile, what's the archetype? And then that archetype then becomes the, the structure that then people look through to the lens and reference to it. So I think that is that there. I think on corporate side, and I can say this, uh, particularly in my previous roles where I had even IR rolling up into me, and I would have to go to IR, um, sorry, uh, investor relation conferences or, or you know, whether our investor conferences, whether it be at our banks or whatnot that were investing in us. I mean, I'd walk into a room and I was definitely the only, only African-American person in there by far. Um, and, and I think that has certain dynamics to it because oftentimes 
people are evaluating through the lens and through the biases of the experiences that they've had. And if you're thinking about reputation, which really is through the lens of the people who are consuming or who are connecting with you, having that lack of diversity creates a problem in-house. And what I often see in the house structure uh, is you either have diversity at the very top, no diversity in the middle, and then diversity at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. And what tends to happen is when people are trying to move through those spheres from the bottom to go to the top, they get lost in the middle part. Or you see the opposite, which is a lot of people are stuck in the middle and they can never move up to this, you know, this higher level. So they wind up leaving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the unique things that I have seen over time is when you do have really talented and diverse talent that if it gets stuck into one of those two scenario bands, that they often spend most of their time restarting their careers. Wow. And and I think that that, and I, I would say that I think you see a lot of that even with women too as well. They have to, particularly if unfortunately, um, there's a view inside the company that when they may go out on maternity leave, I'm just making this an example, that they, they have to come back and quote unquote reprove that mm-hmm. post-maternity leave, that they are able to contribute in the same way they were contributed before. Now, we all know that they can and they should, but for some reason, there's this artificiality that comes, that comes in that kind of questions or tests, if you will, that. And I think that that reset winds up leading to a depression on the talent development and talent opportunity pools that we can pull from in the in-house structure. So I hope that kind of helps answer the question. It does. Um, one thing that you had mentioned last time we spoke was sort of rallying your colleagues at other corporations of your size to to around this issue. Um, how do you envision that? Who do you envision it with? <laughs> what what um, what are your goal as far as that goes? Yeah, yeah. No, it's been wonderful. So one of the things that I uh, just recently did. So I, I had an internal leadership summit. For, for my team and, and the broader um, intersecting teams, if you will, it was out here in Seattle, we brought everybody in, all my global leaders, Hong Kong, China, et cetera. And I actually had three other CCOs, um, Hano uh, at, at, over at General Mills, I had um, Damon Jones over at Medtronic, and then I also had uh, Krista, uh, Krista Pilot, who now is gonna go over to AT&T coming from, um, from Pepsi, come in and basically just talk about their journey and their experiences. And mm-hmm. I think that that was one, but what will we often do too as that group is we often think through, okay, well, how do we as a force start to bring questions around diversity? Because we are the consuming public, right? When it comes to agencies, <laughs> like we're, we're the ones who, who make a lot of decisions based upon the agency piece. And I think um, what that also does is that then helps us talk through even internally how our procurement departments work, or quite frankly, how we think about policy writers we can bring into effect around diversity. So what I mean by that is when 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 agencies go to rebid, one of the things we can ask them about is tell me how you're tracking in terms of improving diversity of representation on the people who are on the teams that work on my business. Right. Um, and recognize that the next time you come up for a recompete, we want to see improvement, if you will, on that, recognizing that you know those numbers could jeopardize your ability to recompete against the business. And I think that's a it's a subtle way of being able to create change into the industry, um, too, as well, but a demonstrative one. 
because when people know that they have to stand for recompetition in those spaces, that becomes a piece there. And then also, when I'm asking for briefs around issues of diversity, and uh, and we are talking about this too as well in terms of how we uh, work as, as as CCOs around this, we're asking briefs around issues of diversity. We don't want you to subcontract two or three levels down in reference to that. We actually want the thought leadership to be at the level that it needs to be to meet the actual remit and the brief itself. And so I do think that winds up allowing for us to kind of force that. So that's how we've been doing that. The other piece we've been doing it too is at these conferences, whether it be at the conference that you hosted, which I was so grateful for to be able to raise these issues and be able to talk about them on a regular basis. Because I do think for those of us who are diverse and also for those of us who are not diverse, if we're raising it, it becomes a clarion call to the industry writ large. I, I would say to you where I would like to see more of this kind of coming from is in the governance space of companies and boards. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, you know, I think I have a great privilege. As you know, Melanie Hobson is my, is my board chair and she has been one of the strongest proponents of diversity in, in corporate America at the board level and at the executive level already written down. And I think that has given me an enormous amount of freedom and enormous amount of authorization to be able to speak forcefully about these issues in addition to the brand that we are at Starbucks. I can't say that the same for some of my other colleagues, but I do think if they could be in spaces like that or if their board chairs or their governance structures could speak more about that, I think it would dramatically help the industry as a whole. So beyond the um, worthy activity in the DEI space um, that you've been working on, corporate corporations and companies are being called on in to be leaders in other areas um, of the world of, of society at this point. Um, where do you see? I mean, that's got to be tricky now. There's so much polarization. Um, there's that thing we mentioned about no room for error. Yeah, there are yeah. issues of diversity and who are you going to please and all of that. I mean, where does this go? How do you maneuver that um, with caution? Yeah, I, I think three things to be true. One is from a corporate standpoint at Starbucks, we lead through our partners. So with our employees, we call them partners. Um, we lead through our partners. And the reason why is because ultimately, if you're going to take a stance or position on anything, recognizing you will be buffeted by attacks or by disagreements or by nuance or what have you, you got to have something to stand on as a foundational reason for why you took that position. And that usually comes from your employee base or your, or we call it our partner base. And so we look through the lens of our partners when we take decisions or positions or what have you, because ultimately that is a business forward or orientation in terms of how you make your decisions. The second piece is we, we're mindful of the fact that we're a global company. And so there may be areas in the globe where we do have to be mindful around the legalities and legal structures that we are operating within too as well. And so we do seem, we do try to make sure that we are honoring if you are positions within the legal frameworks, if you will, in the places in the societies in which we operate in. And that's really important because you never want to find yourself in a situation where you're, quote unquote, forcing a perspective or a view in a society or in a country where that, quite frankly, might not just be the, the case or the view or the, or, the, or, the, or the positioning. 
And so just thinking through that is really important. So that does mean you have to be thoughtful around the consistency of the issues you take on mm -hmm. and also be mindful in terms of highlighting the, the dynamics when you take on that issue, how it will reverberate. And you're, you're accepting the risk. So I, I do think there's a false analogy here that sometimes gets lifted, which is when you take a position, you're doing that in a way of not trying to elevate uh, risk. The reality is if you take any position, you're elevating risk. The question is what level of risk are you willing to hold in the space of being reputable to your employee or your partner base? being thoughtful about the legal frameworks and structural frameworks that you're operating your business within and being intentional around what it is you stand for as a brand. And I think intentionality and authenticity is what the world is craving for today. To be fair, if I had to think about a lot of the political or structural rise of disagreements or what have you, it's often because there's an inauthentic, inauthentic orientation that is being held that often creates cognitive dissonance in terms of the positions that the company is taking and the authenticity that the, that the company holds within that. And so it's one thing for us to take on, as for instance, Starbucks, one thing is to take on a position around, say, for instance, gender affirming care, which mm -hmm. we've been very vocal about, and then recognizing that we have almost well north of a third of our, of our partner base, our employee base, who identifies as LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. So there's no disconnect, if you will, between why we would take that on as a position in the representation of the partner base or the employee base that we have within our company. Right. Um, you mentioned employees as partners. Yes. Clearly number one stakeholders, shall we say? I yeah, mean, they're num number one shareholders. I mean, the reality is they are the largest shareholders that we have in the company. We have over half a million half a million partners globally um, around the world. And while they're not institutional shareholders like Vanguard and BlackRock or State Street or what have you, they are a stakeholder and also a shareholder in the business. Mm -hmm. And I, as a layperson, have always known, you know, Starbucks as, um, as a pretty exceptional employer, um, yeah. part-timers, health benefits. And, yes, and, yes. I believe in all that. But we can't not ask about the unionization issue. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I <laughs> um, expect it. And it's a good conversation to have. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess there's there's two things of, you know, where that's coming from in terms of the employee-employer relationship and then messaging around it because you've gotten plenty of press about it. Um, yes. Uh, it's a tough one. Yeah, it is. I think there are four things to be thoughtful about. And I should back up by just sharing a little bit of background, even for me around union, because I think it allows for... Um, kind of linking back to our earlier discussion about what skill sets do CCOs need to have in the dynamics. So for me, just that you know, so I grew up actually in a union household. My father was a part of the police union in Houston, Texas for almost 32 years. And I saw all the different dynamics of that, whether it would be for my father, um, he has now since passed and the union was very helpful in my ability to lay him to rest with a sense of dignity and also respect. Um, and at the same time, my father also had huge issues and concerns about union dues being used to hire lawyers who he felt were adjudicating cases of police brutality that were wrong. And so there's this unique dichotomy that I lived in within that. Further, I, when I was in Iowa, I actually was trained as a union organizer to help unionize the meatpacking industry up in Iowa and uh, participated in those efforts. And then later on, when I was um, 
uh, both in philanthropy and um, and also in nonprofit. I help to both fund uh, unionization activities, particularly in the strawberry industry, strawberry pickers, and then also domestic workers for childcare workers, et cetera. And then my latter piece on the political side, I also did uh, what the political fundraising on behalf of unions and also independent expenditures uh, decisions on behalf of unions, both for and against people who uh, were on priorities that were uh, uh, top of mind for unionization. And I've also advised Fortune 100 companies on unionization activities. I say all that to say, I that was not on the job description when I started in August. And so, um, so what was I, what was interesting was when the union situation started to heat up in the company, one of the most immediate things I tried to help the company understand was usually there's a disconnect somewhere. And the question was trying to find out what a disconnect was. It was it with operators, was it with uh the baristas, was it with the, the way in which the support structures would happen? So long as it's trying to disconnect. And I think what became very clear was during COVID, there was a disconnect emerge, mainly because you had a situation where people who would normally be in stores each and every day, checking in, looking at the help at stores and whatnot, were not able to do that. They weren't able to do that um, because of COVID. And we often, we forget that we were the first to reopen Mm -hmm. And so there was just a crush of people who were coming to Starbucks, you know, to get back to routine, to reset things. And that created a unique pressure on the business. And you also didn't have, if you will, that connectivity that you normally would have. Mm -hmm. When you are in an immunization process, you have this weird dynamic where um, there are rules that are put in place and legal structures that are put in place since the 1930s and 1950s that pretty much prevent certain things that companies can say without creating what they call a chilling effect, uh, if you will, in unionization activities. So you can't kind of come out and say, well, you know, we believe X, or we believe Y, or whatnot, because then you'll be cited for unfair labor practice in terms of being able to have chilling effects methods to it. So one of the things we had to kind of focus a lot on was how do we get back into connection with our baristas and with our hourly partners in reference to that? And also, also how do we get thoughtful about communicating what is the brand and value proposition that we've always provided that we uh, maybe have not communicated well. The other piece I would lift up is that a majority of our baristas that were hired um, between 2000 and 2002 were brand, well, I'm sorry, majority of baristas who were working between 2000 and 2022, 2020 and 2022, were actually brand new to the company. Um, and so there wasn't, so you had this issue of lack of connection and you had a lot of new people who came into the company uh, in reference to it. And then I think, uh, to be fair, and I think it's, 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 a, it's a dynamic that we have now seen on the other side of it, was there was a, a strong temperament in society that said that, um, you know, where do we find issues of voice and where, do, where does voice ultimately originate from? And we as a company believe that the best way that voice originates and is honored is directly with us. That's how we built this company. To be fair, um, for 51 years, this company has worked without unionization or union activities. And we have outperformed any unionization structure in terms of our benefits and compensation and that before that. I think the, the dynamic is the people who were engaging, really didn't have a chance to connect with that and didn't have a chance to experience that. So that's a comms issue. And that's the issue that had to be fixed. 
uh, very aggressively. I think as we fix that, what we have seen is unionization efforts have gone down dramatically to where the petitioning is pretty much non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, and that we've had a lot of partners, and there's been recent articles, I'm sure you've read, a lot of partners who have said, you know, unionization isn't for me, and that I do want to have a direct seat, um, and, and direct seating with the leadership of the company to be able to make sure that my needs and my efforts are, are addressed. And I think we're getting better at that. And my belief is that ultimately we'll be able to see that. And for those who do want a unionization, who do want union, who want, do want to be a part of union, uh, that we have to support that process and, and collectively bargain in that process, which quite frankly is unheard of. We are doing almost 300 um, uh, uh, meetings, if you will, of collective bargaining agreement meetings to go through the negotiation process. And that's unheard of. And the reason why is because we're doing it store by store. So you're meeting with anywhere between six to 10 to maybe 12 partners in a store to work through a unionization contract. And that's just unheard of in, in any time in history. So that's where we are. I'm excited where we are, though, uh, to be fair, because I, I'm mindful of the fact, and this is the real challenge. I will say this one last time. Um, you know, we've had about just under 300 stores that have voted to unionize. That represents about 1% of our, of, our, of our partner population. Um, but the reason why I'm, I'm excited about it is, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, what is done is, is let people to look to see how will Starbucks navigate this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great opportunity if you're a new CCO to be able to show the power of not only comms, but more importantly, the power of the brand and the power of the company to be able to meet the challenges of the day. And I think that that's an exciting time. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Excellent. Well, you have been hugely generous with your time. Thank you. Uh, um, same to you as well. But I have to ask you one quick question before you sure. go. Because no in your bio, it says you are a horologist. 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 Are you a yes. clockmaker? Uh, I, I, I had to I look love, it up. Yeah, I love watchmaking. I love watchmaking. Um, so okay. it's, it's basically the, the science and the, the study of, of watchmaking, the study of time. And the reason okay. why is because so much of what we govern our lives around is inextricably linked to the time and the uses of the time that we have. And so with that, this time we got together has <laughs> yeah, been amazing and those kind of things. I know my time is up. So but I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Me too. You know, Diana's been amazing. Have a wonderful new year and looking forward to all that's ahead. So thank and you. And same to you. Wish you the best. You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.